Hi, I'm Jessica Marcus. I live in Chicago, Illinois, and work for an organization called Built for Zero. And we work to support communities all across the country in ending veteran and long-term chronic homelessness. I got into this field and think civic engagement is really important because it's really critical to use data to solve really complex social problems. That is often missing from the field and we're trying to combine it together here and move the ball forward in a really productive way. Welcome to the Civic Hacker Podcast. This is your host, Lauren McNeil, founding director of the Civic Hacker Network and the Civic Hacker Summit. Our mission is to connect people working to use data and technology to make a positive impact in their communities. We equip and empower technologists to tackle the work needed to create change. We amplify the work our membership is doing by providing a platform through which Civic Hackers can publicize their projects, collaborate, and get the resources and support they need. In this episode of the Civic Hacker Podcast, you will hear another one of the amazing conversations from the Civic Hacker Summit. I had the privilege of connecting with Jessica Marcus, who at the time was the Deputy Director of Data and Performance Management at an organization called Community Solutions. We talked about how they use data to bring homeless counts down to functional zero, one community at a time. That's right, I said zero. We talk about the different segments of the population experiencing homelessness and why the type of homelessness matters in addressing this issue. How the typical way communities measure their homelessness issue falls tragically short of being usable for getting people housed. Which civic institutions and actors are needed at the table to make progress on this issue. And you'll also hear about one of their early failures and what they learned that led to their success today. You'll want to stick around after the conversation for an update on what Community Solutions is doing to continue eradicating homelessness and how you can support this work. Enjoy the conversation. just a little bit about Jessica. She is the Deputy Director of Data and Performance Management for Built for Zero, an effort led by Community Solutions to support 70 communities in ending veteran and chronic homelessness. Her work has focused on incorporating quality improvement methodology, database infrastructure development, systems design, and data visualizations in order to enhance communities' ability to track their progress and ultimately house more people more quickly. Prior to Built for Zero, Jessica was a member of the data and performance management team on the 100,000 Homes campaign, an effort to help 188 communities house 100,000 vulnerable and chronically homeless individuals between 2010 and uh, 2014. And uh, with that, I will ask Jessica to join me here. Hello. Welcome. (laughs) Thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, so I'm really excited to uh, talk to you. I was just blown away when I heard about um, the work that was being done and um, actually, you know, achieving something that I think a lot of people don't really think of as achievable. Um, so, um, you know, first, please tell us about, you know, kind of how you came to work for Community Solutions and um, a little bit more about your role there. Yeah, of course. So I actually interned for Community Solutions about seven years ago, 
And at the time we were running a different campaign called the 100,000 Homes Campaign, which was also a national effort supporting about 200 communities in housing as many vulnerable people as possible. And really loved my experience at the time and a job opened up uh, and I rushed to grab it and have been working there ever since um, and have really found community solutions values and approach to be incredibly exciting and unique in the nonprofit world. Uh, we take an approach that is different from a lot of nonprofits in terms of focusing on data, really using that to drive the conversation, making decisions, switching course if things are not working and measuring ourselves, you know, along the lines that we need to be moving towards. All right. So in, in your role there, are you, um, you know, was your role new or has this always kind of been, you know, the, the nature of your work with the organization, even as an intern? Yeah, that's a good question. So data was always something that we had focused on, but not to the degree that we do now. Mm -hmm. uh, when I first started, I was the only data person on the entire team. And right now we've got seven folks who focus on data. So the expansion has been huge and we've really prioritized it as sort of one of the primary things that we can bring to the sector and focus on. Um, I'm sure it will continue to grow in the next few years. That's always kind of a place where people need to do more and learn more and we are already giving advice to other countries not just communities in the u.s so we're working with canada some folks internationally in europe australia so there's there's certainly a need i think we've identified the need in the sector and we're just sort of at that sweet spot where we've been able to experience a lot make a lot of mistakes and learn from those mistakes to be able to offer that advice more broadly internal inside the US, you know, are you getting the interest, you know, as well? Do you have to do a lot of outreach to kind of get people to say, hey, you know, <laughs> look, there's something different that can be done here? Yeah, it's been quite an evolution, actually. When we first started, we launched the 100,000 Homes campaign back in 2010. And that happened to coincide with my first year on the team. And no one knew what we were doing. It was kind of this new crazy thing, looking at things from a systems perspective and using data to inform those decisions. And we had to do a lot of outreach at the time. We were kind of going into communities and saying, look, this is what we're doing. Are you interested? Here are some other communities that have sort of tried this already and you can talk to them, kind of hear about their experience. And things just have grown from there. People are now very aware of the work that we're doing. Um, we had an application process for Built for Zero and got, you know, quite a few applications. We currently have awesome. communities participating in the initiative and um, it hasn't been as much of an effort to try to recruit people because they're already seeing the value okay. and interested in uh, sort of what they're seeing the results come from. Okay, that's awesome. I guess that's another benefit of being data-driven is that you can point to clear Right, <laughs> to clear results and, and socialize. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You mentioned um, the type of homelessness, you know, that you guys are addressing, you know, as being kind of long-term chronic and veteran homelessness. Um, you know, how does that focus, you know, can you elaborate on that for people that maybe don't ever really think about the different types of homelessness? Yeah, absolutely. So I think often people sort of just think as home of homelessness as one big 
very similar looking intractable problem. And in reality, there are all these different subpopulations and differences among the types of folks who might be experiencing homelessness. You know, there's veterans who are homeless, folks who are homeless for a very long period of time who are often really sick. So we call that chronic homelessness, uh, family homelessness, youth homelessness, people who are experiencing specific types of disabilities that might be eligible for specific types of resources. So the federal government actually defines all of these populations. And okay. the reason it's important to differentiate is because there are different types of resources available for different types of populations. Um, so if you're a veteran, for example, you have access to all of these veteran-specific resources that you would not have access to otherwise. Okay. So, being able to kind of figure out where someone falls into which category is really helpful in identifying what the need is and being able to give them the types of help and resources that is most applicable to their situation. We selected veteran homelessness and chronic homelessness to start with because those were priorities for the federal government at the time okay. in 2010. Uh, and so we wanted to align with their priorities first and move on later on, hopefully to other populations as well. Before and after, so you, you um, a community is lucky enough <laughs> to have um, applied and, and, you know, is working with you. Um, what does the data tend to look like when, you know, you arrive in you know, terms of the typical model of how municipalities are addressing homelessness versus like what you end up creating um, when things are fully implemented? Yeah, so I'll take a step back and kind of paint a bigger, broad picture for you for a second. So for a long time, for many, many years in the 2000s and even until the last three or four years, really, communities were measuring their homelessness problem in terms of annual aggregate de-identified counts called points that have yeah. been of every January and over the course of one or two nights the community will recruit volunteers and other people to go out and basically do head counts mm -hmm. on the streets or in the shelters and that data all gets aggregated in the community and at the end of that process they say oh we have 312 people and that's the data we report to HUD and it affects the kind of resources we get coming down the pipe later on. You can see there are a lot of problems with that. Yeah, and a lot of people wonder, well, okay, we counted them. Um, what is really being done? Like, you know, and as an analyst, I think, well, what could you even do? <laughs> yeah. The identified aggregate number, yeah. you have no way of actually knowing who that person is who's on that corner, you know, on the corner of Maine and Broad, for example, what their story is, what their specific needs are. All of that gets lost in the picture, in the process. So what we decided needed to change was that first and foremost we needed to start basically putting names and faces to those people and helping communities do that in a way that they could take actionable steps after you know they figured out who they were and focus on okay well joe on the corner is a veteran he has diabetes he um, has mobility challenges and we know exactly the kind of support that we need to give him in a way that you would never ever be able to figure out if you were just doing anonymous headcounts so we kind of transitioned that uh, approach over the last few years and helping communities develop what we call by name lists which are person specific 
name by name, exactly as it sounds, ways of keeping track of folks experiencing homelessness in your community. So right now, communities that we're working with get all the support in the world for all the things they need to do to develop those by name lists and keep them updated on a regular basis, keep them living, breathing documents so that on any given day they can go look at the lists, say we have 82 people, we know exactly where they are last time we saw them, their names, their histories, um, the types of income they might have, like disability, um, whether or not they're a veteran, whether or not they have any other types of chronic illnesses, all of that information that would help us move them into housing, help the community move them into housing. And I can see how um, doing the count night is a lot easier than, right, than what you're talking about. It sounds like um, something that, you know, might be kind of hard. And, you know, for the, and then for the skeptics, you know, what do you say um, to those you know, maybe not anymore. Um, but in the beginning, when you were, you know, trying to convince communities that this was, you know, worth investing in this effort, um, you know, did, I'm sure there's people that are saying, you know, well, Joe tells me his name is Joe this week, and next week it's Mike, or, you know, you know, just things like, how do you overcome those objections of, of yeah. investing in doing this, you know, more in-depth data collection on, on your homeless population? Yeah, exactly. So our motto sort of has always been, you can't solve a problem that you can't measure. Mm -hmm. And so if you don't have a really comprehensive way of keeping track of what you're doing, you will never know whether you're getting closer to ending homelessness, which ideally is everyone's common goal. And for a long time, people have sort of just been in the business of managing homelessness, providing, mm -hmm. you know, things that really weren't going to move the needle in terms of getting more people into permanent housing as soon as possible. And that is kind of the lens that we took to push that conversation. Um, mm -hmm. We also, to be honest, we made a lot of mistakes at first in trying to use more aggregate data to help communities make projections. Mm -hmm. The first year of Built for Zero, we relied primarily on those point in time count numbers and added in some assumptions around inflows of folks who were coming into homelessness throughout the year to make projections around when the community might get closer to ending veteran homelessness, for example. And we were wildly off in those projections, not even close. And at the end of the year, we said, you know, mea culpa, we made a mistake. This was not the right way of looking at it. And we want to switch course. And I think that honesty and transparency and the ability to be nimble and say, you know, we just got to do something totally different was really refreshing for folks and they were more willing to come along and kind of join the, the new conversation, the new narrative, because they realized that what we were doing wasn't working. Um, and that transparency, I think, helped that process move along and faster. Right. So you could kind of show like, okay, we tried to do it the lower effort way and this is where we are. Yeah. Exactly. And honestly, the results speak for themselves on the ground. Once a community starts developing this by name list, you know, once they get over mm -hmm. the initial hurdle of the people and the resources it takes to do that, they start to see the results in their own community. Like, we know that we moved 10 people into housing last month. We know who these people are. They're staying in housing. We're seeing maybe two new people a month. But look, our list is going down. We have fewer homeless folks experiencing homelessness this month than we did last month, which is really the ultimate arbiter 
Mm-hmm. And do you find that it, um, you know, it seems like that would also help people with um, that feeling or, or perception of, you know, you mentioned like projections on, on inflows and outflows. And so if you know who everybody is, like that, the perception that some people have that there's like this massively fast growing homeless population, like may not actually be, you know, probably not yeah. actually, you know, it. So um, you have now uh, you have a concrete picture. Yeah. Show that. Exactly. Yeah. I think a binary list is fantastic for a couple reasons. One, it tells you person specific data. So you know that Joe has X, Y, and Z and needs X, Y, and Z support. But also you have that information on a hundred Joes, right? So you can pull back out, zoom out and take a look at, okay, there were eight new people who came into the system last month. We know everything about them, but on a more aggregate level, we can say, these are the types of resources we need. We have mm-hmm. veterans on our list. We need 15 veteran specific resources. So you can start doing system planning on a more aggregate level using that person specific data that mm-hmm. you wouldn't have been able to do before and really quantify this is what our outflow looks like. This is what our inflow looks like. We can tell you the story using that data um, in a really powerful way. Right. Um, and so with collecting the, you know, this detailed data, is it, um, is all of it kind of from a survey or is there a point at which you um, are having, you know, communities to bring together the social services data? Because sometimes, right, these things are kind of, they're siloed and they're protected. (laughs) So knowing that Joe is a veteran should, you know, in theory, that's a lot of data that then is already known about him. Yeah. Uh, If you could get it and match it up. So, you know, how, how does that vary from place to place and how do you overcome that so typically what's easiest and not necessarily the most efficient but the easiest way of going about kind of starting your list is to do uh implement what we call a common assessment tool um so it's it's a survey essentially and there's a few really um common ones out there in the united states that a lot of communities use And it asks, let's say, like 30 to 40 questions that will basically tell you everything you need to know about that person that would help you move them into housing later on. Um, So a community will go out and they could do like one blitz over the course of a week or just start incorporating it into their normal outreach hours. Um, A combination of both is actually also. And keeping that list updated using that survey data is really important. But like you said, some of that data actually already exists, you know, in other databases. Um, The problem is that those databases are often very siloed Mm -hmm. and it's not always easy to access them. Um, The holy grail, I think, really is having one system that could access all of that information so that you could see what their hospital history was like. You could see what other medical information was like. Um, You wouldn't have to go out and collect it every time and it would all sort of percolate into one place but that's a little bit down the road (laughs) yeah uh yeah and i can see how you know you may that there may be resistance or you know but even if you i guess if it was um anonymized in some way like for the purposes of sharing does that you know does that completely make it lose its value you know so you know it's like you need to attach it to that specific person 
So yeah, you kind of have That's to. That's the challenge is yeah. that people are more comfortable sharing when you remove the personal identification information. Yeah. That's the whole value of it to begin with. So yeah. making sure, you know, that you get those people to the table in a way that feels comfortable for everyone and privacy is not, you know, compromised in any way. But you maintain those really important key data points, like their name and something that could tie it all together. Right. So um, uh, you mentioned that, you know, this stuff needs to be kept updated. Uh, so how often are people um, resurveying or, you know, triaging this data? And, you know, is there, you know, are there kind of some techniques that you found work best for um, kind of getting a, a process in place in the community to do more than the annual um, gathering? Yeah, yeah. Best practice is as frequent as possible, which of mm -hmm. course is not always easy, but almost every community has an outreach team. So folks who will go out into the community, know where the hotspots are, know where people, you know, stay if they're not in shelters, if they're out on the streets, and regularly visit them. So whether that's once a week, twice a week, once every two weeks. Um, so they're constantly making contact with new people, but also folks who they're working to get into housing. Um, and then coming back to the leadership team who's working in that community, let's say on ending veteran homelessness. And communities do something called case conferencing. So it's mm -hmm. sort of what it sounds like, you know, once a week or once every two weeks, they will get together with their outreach folks, other people who might be out in the community, who know something or updates about these people on the list and literally run through name by name and say, you know, have you seen John in the last week? Where is he in the process of getting housing? Always with that mindset of how is he moving towards getting housing? What paperwork does he still need? Are there updates that you need to make to his survey? That kind of thing. So making sure that new assessments, new surveys that are done that we get added to the list, whether that's at the case conferencing meeting or beforehand, mm -hmm. any updates that the outreach workers might find that week get updated during that meeting or beforehand. Um, okay. So really important to make sure that you are bringing everyone together in person on a regular basis. Right. And how, when um, you're collecting the data and kind of storing it, are people using like going from paper to entering, you know, data entry. I, I'm just thinking, okay, like how can I get like a hundred people with an app to go <laughs> commit to go, you know, take, talking to homeless people. I am, we are going to get this done. Um, so yeah. So how, you know, how are we, how does it work? Yeah. Storing the data and yeah, every community does it slightly different in terms of process, but um, the system that most communities use is called HMIS, which stands for Homeless Management Information System. And it's a system that's provided by different vendors, so they don't all look the same, but they have the same data requirements that are mandated by HUD. And okay. communities will store their data in that system. Um, sometimes you can't take it out into the field on you know, an iPad or a phone. So you have to do it on a paper survey or sometimes that's what people feel more comfortable with. Mm -hmm. um, so you can, as a community, choose to just enter in the paper information afterwards or in a lot of places they are testing out using technology out in the field more frequently. And you can just pull up 
you know, the assessment survey on your phone and type in the answers as you hear them, which cuts down on time and effort significantly. So yeah. that's typically where it's all stored. The process for getting the data into the system kind of varies by community. Who in, within a city or county uh, would be needed, needed at the table to make something like this work? Yeah, it, it takes a village. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, this is going to get a little bit wonky, but the way that uh, homelessness resources are allocated throughout the country is through a geographic area called a continuum of care, a COC for short, and sometimes they'll align directly with a city boundary line. So it'll be, you know, Chicago COC is its own continuum of care. Mm -hmm. It's the you know Chicago boundary lines. Um, in some cases, it fits a county boundary. So there's about 300 or so COCs throughout the country. Okay. Um, and they are kind of the lead agency, um, and they're often made up of people who from multiple agencies. But the lead body that will sort of govern the community's efforts towards ending veteran homelessness or chronic homelessness, for okay. example. But in addition to that, <laughs> you also need representatives from the Department of Veterans Affairs, um, especially when you're working with veterans. And their geography is a little bit different than the HUD geography, so it's interesting to kind of figure out yeah. how those things overlap. Um, that's been a little bit of a challenge. Um, the Public Housing Authority, so HUD allocates resources through their PHAs, um, and a lot of PHAs have uh, what we call homeless preferences. So they will, they have rules written into their, uh, their contracts that they create that will give preference to folks experiencing homelessness for public housing. Um, you need business leaders actually. So they have a vested interest in this from a different perspective. They often want to see, you know, the streets that their businesses are on, uh, you know, not, Full of people experiencing homelessness because it helps traffic, you know, and put traffic flow into their businesses. Um, you want uh, outreach teams, so you know whether that's provided by nonprofits um, or faith-based enterprises. Um, you also want faith-based organizations, so churches. They often see people, um, mm -hmm. and then other non-traditional partners so you know the mayor a huge one okay and they all have different voices in the system right the mayor is not going to go out and interview folks but he will serve as an, a huge advocate for the people who are working on this issue um and often you know someone who can kind of hold people accountable because he wants to see results in a way that perhaps some of the other stakeholders you know wouldn't necessarily look for um Everyone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the average person, the average volunteer. Um, sometimes even folks who previously experienced homelessness move on to serve as peer advocates. So they know where those hotspots are. They can often go out and talk to folks in a way that other people may not be able to sort of navigate. Um, so it really does take a village. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, in terms of your work and your team of analysts and you know, what you, you all are doing with this data, you know, how does, you know, is there kind of a national view? Like what are some of the things that um, you find, you know, 
that your team has to work on the most um, in terms of this, you know, by name data or even, mm-hmm. you know, developing kind of insights or um, other stories around the data as a whole? Yeah, I think um, the first thing that comes to mind is the fact that data has not always been part of the conversation locally. And things have really changed in the last several years, but sometimes you still have to kind of push people in that direction a little bit to get them to see the importance of data, thinking about different ways to visualize data, um, to push that conversation locally, Mm -hmm. make the case that they need more resources for X, you need to be able to show the data to prove that. Um, Really supporting them and figuring out how to organize the data So the idea that you would want to look at inflow separately from outflow, separately from, you know, people who are currently on your list um, is something that we've been really supportive of in local communities and kind of helping them even define what that means. Um, Even before Built for Zero launched, there was no definition of what it meant to end veteran homelessness. So you would never know as a community whether you were there because there was no way to define the end. So we helped create one, um, put one in place so that people knew what North Star they were working towards. So all- What is the- the definition you know, now that you mention it yeah people probably just would assume like oh that means no one <laughs> so but that's yeah well, so that, more to that's it the ultimate goal that yeah. there's no one. but we realize that it's not entirely realistic that no one will ever become homeless ever again so you need to account for a normal amount of inflow and so the definition that we created for built for zero communities uh on behalf of veteran homelessness specifically, is that at any given time, you will have fewer veterans left on your by name list than your six month average housing placement rate. And so what that means is that if you've been able to house an average of 15 veterans every month over the last six months, you have to have fewer than 15 veterans on your list, essentially proving that you could house those 15 veterans or 12 veterans in one month if you needed to that that is the system capacity that you have, Um, which takes into account the fact that new veterans might always become homeless for now. Um, Down the road, we want to think about ways to look further upstream and prevent people from becoming homeless, which is kind of the next chapter, but that's the definition we're using for now. And then on chronic homelessness, the bar's a little bit higher. Um, This was developed in partnership with HUD and other federal agencies. And the goal and the definition is that you will have three three people experiencing chronic homelessness or fewer on your list. So zero, one, two, or three. (laughs) And you have to to sustain it for 90 days. Um, So if you reach three people, you have to make sure that you keep it at three for 90 days. Okay. And why, what was the rationale for three? For three. It's a lot easier to prevent people from becoming chronically homeless than it is to prevent people from veterans from becoming homeless. Mm-hmm. So the definition, this is very wonky, I'm sorry if it goes oh, into no. but the definition for a chronically homeless individual is that you need to have been homeless for at least one year or longer oh, okay. and have a qualifying disability. Hmm. So you can imagine 
you will have known about that person for a long time before they become chronically homeless. Mm -hmm. So there's no excuse for letting them, what we call age into chronicity. Mm -hmm. You should be housing them in that first year. So we figured it was a lot easier to prevent chronic homelessness from happening to begin with. Okay. And so that's why the bar is really high. That makes sense. Um, yeah. Okay. And so um, last but not least, um, can you tell us about, you know, where these um, goals have been achieved and how it's been, you know, measuring kind of over the longer term, um, you know, how, how these communities are doing? And what does that look like? What would it be like, right? To wrap your head around like if your veterans were housed. Yeah, it's, it's really amazing what we've seen over the last couple of years. So on the veteran side, we have six communities that have fully ended veteran homelessness by our definition. Um, they are Arlington, Virginia, Montgomery County, Maryland, Rockford, Illinois, um, Gulf Coast, Mississippi, Fort Myers, Florida, and Riverside, California. So kind of all over the country representing very different sizes and types of communities. And on the chronic homelessness side, Bergen County, New Jersey has ended chronic homelessness and sustained it for almost a year, which is really incredible. Wow. Um, they currently have zero individuals experiencing chronic homelessness in their community, and they are a very large county. So wow. it's, uh, it's really amazing to think that, you know, a place let's say of at least a million people can have 10 homeless veterans at any given time or zero chronically homeless individuals. I think they are the true um, vanguards in this movement and we are learning so much for them. We take advantage of their time all the time <laughs> because we have yeah. so much about what they've, you know, experienced. Wow. Well, that's amazing. Um, so, you know, what are kind of the long-term plans um, that, you know, that you have data-wise? Like, you know, um, we mentioned that it's really difficult to have data uh, get opened up and linked up, but do you see even, you know, on the horizon that being something that you work on or, and, you know, what, any benefits to connecting these data sets across yeah. the different communities? Yeah, I think long-term, that's absolutely the goal to make it as easy as po possible for someone or a community to find out information that would help move someone into housing more quickly. That's really the end point for all of these you know, efforts. And mm -hmm. if that data is already being stored somewhere else, why do you have to reinvent the wheel? Mm -hmm. You're just slowing down the process. Um, so that's certainly on the horizon. Um, maybe a little bit down the road, who knows, it might be more <laughs> faster than we expect. Um, and then also, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, the next chapter of our work will involve looking at inflow. And mm -hmm. now that we have a lot of proof points around what it looks like to get as close to zero as possible, how can we help communities start to prevent folks from entering homelessness to begin with? And that involves looking upstream mm -hmm. at people who are in the prison system, um, people who are using hospitals very frequently, people who are aging out of foster care. So all of these really important systems that a community has interacting you know, with each other, all of those contribute to homelessness to some extent. It's people mm -hmm. 
for whom every other system has sort of failed them and they've just ended up in the homelessness system as a last resort. And so being able to look at the bigger picture in a community and see how all those things are interacting in a way that we might be able to prevent people from, or catch them earlier basically, prevent them from getting to the homelessness system to begin with. Hey there listener, are you ready to make an impact in your community? Wherever you are on your civic hacker journey and whatever level of interest you have in civic tech, you will want to get your free access to a special video collection we put together themed around building a civic hacking community. Just go to civic-hackers.org slash free videos, all one word, free videos to enter your email address and get the exclusive link. Once again, that's civic-hackers.org slash free videos. Special thanks to Jessica for providing such a wonderful breakdown of the process and power behind how Community Solutions is using data to help communities across the U.S. and beyond. I know that you are just as blown away as I was by the work Community Solutions is doing. Just take a moment and visualize the world that they're advocating for. Can you visualize your parks, the streets where you live, the streets of your downtown as places where there are no unhoused veterans trying to survive outdoors. And not because of a recent police sweep, but because those people got connected to the housing they needed. Imagine how different our communities would be. Currently, the tremendous impact of community solutions work is being recognized by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. They are one of six finalists in the foundation's 100 and change competition where $100 million will be awarded to a, quote, single proposal that promises real and measurable progress in solving a critical problem of our time, end quote. Especially now in the wake of the economic effects of COVID, the work of Community Solutions is more urgent than ever. If you want to learn more about that competition or follow the work that Community Solutions is doing or learn how to get involved, you can check out their website, which is www.community.solutions. Um, there you can, of course, also get their social media info and um, info on how to donate as well. As always, I want to wrap things up with gratitude. These days, I'm feeling really thankful for people who refuse to allow the failure of imagination of others to limit the scope and impact of the work they choose to do. I am so glad that there are leaders and community members and organizations who are doing the work that lifts people up in ways that others say is impossible or can't even envision. We owe a debt of gratitude to those folks I see on social media who are participating in the Civic Hacker Network via all their great interactions. And you are, of course, welcome to join in. 
Um, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. Get yourself onto our email list for an invitation to join us on Slack. Uh, all of these links are on our website, civic-hackers.org. And we are also really thankful for people who choose to rate and review this podcast. It helps others find us, and the feedback helps me to produce a better show for you. I ask if you haven't already, please go ahead and leave us a review on your listening platform of choice. Thank you so much for being on this journey with me. I'm humbled by your support and just really appreciate you. I'm Lori McNeil, wishing you all the good things between now and your next listen to the Civic Hacker Podcast. Problems have solutions. Let's get to work. The Civic Hacker Podcast is a production of the Civic Hacker Network. The Civic Hacker Network is a networking and support hub for people using data and technology to create positive change in their communities. Join the network for free at civic-hackers.org.